Good morning. Whoa, hello. <laughs> All right, get me adjusted there while we're doing that. Um, take just a moment here to, uh, to see if there's any, any testimonies from the car show yesterday. Anybody have conversations they, they could share with us? I haven't heard of any yet, but had a couple of good conversations with people, but they didn't lead to a giving of the gospel. I was able to invite one man to, to church, he lives down the street, we'll see. But uh, make introductions, start build relationships, kind of earn the right to give the gospel. Anything today? All right. I'd like to wish those of you that are fathers, happy Father's Day. It's a, it's a nice day. Yeah, thank you. All right, let us ask the Lord's help. Father, we come before you this morning as your children, just grateful that you are a great father to us. We thank you for adopting us into your family, making us your children. You're so good to us, we thank you. We love you for that. We wanna honor you, we wanna please you. We just ask for those that came to the car show yesterday and they did hear the gospel, we pray that you would use it in their hearts to, um, to, to draw them, to make them curious, to make them desire to know you. We ask that you would give us more opportunities. People would reach back and, and want to know about you. Why, why would we would open our property and ourselves to them? Pray that you would just use these efforts to to point people to Jesus. We desire that they would be saved. We know that's your heart as well, and we're grateful for that. We just ask for the teaching of your word this morning, both in our class and the classes down the hall, that it would be um, honoring to you, that it would be true to your word, that it would be with compassion, and that we would just uh, learn what you have for us today about yourself and about ourselves about how we can relate to you better and be more like Jesus, our Savior. And we ask it on his authority. Amen. All right. We are in chapter 31. Guess how many chapters are in the book of 1 Samuel? 31. How about that? Okay. So uh, here we are. And we have this week and next week in our Sunday school year. And then we'll be doing different things for the summer. Next week we'll be doing a review of sorts. And if I remember, we'll talk about that at the end, all right? So um, this week, we have a chapter that's about Saul's death. There's some of these chapters that I've looked forward to because they're like really like inspirational or, you know, like something David did or Samuel did or said that just, you know, really like grips our heart and teaches us um, what we should be like. This is kind of a downer chapter. I'll just tell you going into this right up front, it's, it's about Saul taking his own life, really. So we, we, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about what that means and how that happened and how we should be thinking about it as believers. Um, there's also, interestingly, three different passages in Scripture that talk about Saul's death. So we need to look at those three. So one is obviously chapter 31, and then 2 Samuel chapter 1 also is about Saul's death. So we're going to bleed over into 2 Samuel a little bit and get a little bit of taste about what that is about. So we'll look at that. And then there's, um, there's some verses in First Chronicles too um, as well. So another 
another history book of Israel, and we'll look and see what we can learn in addition to what we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 31. So let's turn to this chapter, 1 Samuel 31. It's a short chapter, um, so it's kind of interesting. We have one chapter, it's short, and yet it's going to take a whole lesson to, to get through. So we'll, um, we'll dive right in with, um, with chapter 31. Since it's short, I thought I would just read it um, right through. So I know that's going to take a little bit of concentration um, I will say that there's some of this that is not PG material. You know, it's, it's a, a little bit gruesome. So I'm just going to read it. Like, like it's what the Bible says. So it, it's not, not sugarcoating anything. I don't want to make more of the gruesomeness of it than it is. But it's what the Bible says. So we'll read it. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And, the, and so do you remember the context here? So we, we've had... Um, the Philistines are preparing for this big invasion of Israel, and Saul and his army have gathered, and Saul went to visit the witch of Endor, or the medium. I, I always heard witch of Endor growing up, so I always lapse into that. It says medium in our ESV. And, and she says, listen, you know, I, I, you know I, I don't do that because Saul doesn't allow it. And then you know, he works it out, and she calls up Samuel, and Samuel says, things don't look good for you, buddy. Um, you're going to be with me tomorrow. <laughs> it's like... Oh, okay. And Saul goes away, and um, I can imagine that was pretty depressing uh, conversation. So, verse 1 again, sorry. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest they, these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all of the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So what a way to end the book, huh? Not exactly... Um, go get them, you know? I mean, it's, it's a pretty bleak ending. But it's a bleak ending to really kind of a sad story of Saul, a man who started with so much potential, so much blessing from God, who actually started his ministry as king in a good way. He had his first battle, and he said God gave the victory, and there were people who were grumbling against him, and he didn't take retribution against them, and he could have. He exercised mercy and grace. He demonstrated characteristics of our God in doing that. 
but here he comes to an end. And this end is painful in so many ways. It's painful for the nation of Israel. The men of Israel are fleeing before this multitude of Philistines. We don't know exactly how many uh, were on each side. We're given the impression that the Philistines greatly outnumbered Israel. Um, And the men of Israel flee, and whenever there's a rout in these old-time battles, that's when the casualties really mount up, because men are running and the people pursuing have the advantage because they're not being attacked. So it's just a one-sided battle, and all of these men are being killed. Saul's sons are killed, too. It sounds like they were right there around Saul. I mean, the context kind of shows us that it looks like, you know, the, the king and the three princes were there, and Saul perhaps watches his sons die. You know, it's just horrible to think about and to see. And Saul is wounded by archers. And so if you kind of get the visual picture of what the battle is going on, the, the, you know, the archers have sent their arrows from a further distance than you would fight with a sword. And the infantry is advancing, but they're not there yet. They haven't gotten to Saul. Saul has been hit, as have others, probably his sons. He's unable to escape. He's wounded enough that he can't get away at this point. And he has some time before capture. And he comes to an ignominious death. That's a shameful death, one that is in obscurity. And he's afraid. He's facing death and he's afraid. Now, you would think he would be afraid of what? Someone facing death in minutes should be afraid of what? Going to hell. hell. Dan, you had something? Be afraid of God. Be afraid of meeting your creator face to face and him saying, what did you do with me? Did you put your belief and trust in me? And facing an eternity without God. That's what someone facing death momentarily should be afraid of. And yet that's not what we see Saul say. We don't know what he was thinking, obviously. But what does he say? What is he concerned about? What does Scripture tell us that he says? Yeah, so he's more afraid of being abused by the enemy, and it says that he's being afraid of being run through and then mistreated. It's not clear to me if he thought he was going to be mistreated while he's still alive or if he's going to be mistreated in death. His body is mistreated after he's dead. There was a, in this culture, there was a big thing to honoring the body of a dead person, you know, taking care of it. We, we see that in our culture today, you know, that you don't mistreat a dead body. There's actually, it's crimes. Those are criminal matters if you do bad things to dead bodies. But he's afraid of being mistreated. Perhaps he's thinking of Samson. Remember how Samson was mistreated when he was captured by the Philistines? His eyes are put out. He's put into bondage. He knows that as the king, he will be a prize to the Philistines, and he is concerned about that. He's concerned more about his reputation and his physical treatment than he is about meeting God, apparently, from the text. His armor bearer is afraid too. What is he afraid of? What verse is that? Into verse 4. What is his armor bearer afraid of? This is a trick question. <laughs> Doesn't say. <laughs> what do you think he might be afraid of, Jeff? Yeah, do you really want to be the guy that kills the king? I mean, how do you go home to that? You know, 
you know, that you think about how David looked at the king. We've talked for weeks about how David looked at Saul as the king, the, the Lord's anointed, someone that God has appointed to be in this position, and he would not raise his hand against him. He wouldn't take his life, even though he could have easily multiple times. This armor bearer may be thinking that. He may be thinking that this would be a sin against God for raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. It may be that he doesn't want to kill the king, which may be like an act of treason kind of thing. Um, there's, there's like a, a bravery ethic that is involved in this. What is the armor bearer supposed to do? He's supposed to be like a personal bodyguard. He's supposed to be protecting the king. So the guy that is most charged with protecting the king takes his life? I don't think so. That's not, that's not a good look. That's not something that you want to be your family's reputation. So we're not completely sh- sure if he, figure, if he fears the shame or the rep- reprisal or even God's justice, but he is afraid to do this as well. And as a result, we see that Saul takes his own life. He falls on his sword. And then his armor bearer, seeing that Saul has done that, he does the same. He follows suit. Again, how do, you, how do you survive the battle and say, well, what happened to Saul? It's like, well, you know, he got shot by the archers and then he killed himself. And it's like, well, why are you here? <laughs> and that's hard to explain also. And he takes his own life. And that raises for us a, a question that when I was growing up, you didn't talk about in polite society, and that's suicide. It's a real thing. It's hard. We see it in our society today. Every society has seen it. We see it in Scripture, so we need to talk about it a little bit. We need to talk about it compassionately. We need to talk about it realistically. We need to talk about it from a biblical worldview. So we'll talk about it briefly. It's not the main topic here, but it is important for us to recognize, and I feel like I'd be remiss if we glossed over it. So there's other examples in Scripture of suicide. So anybody think of some? Judas is the, probably the, the one main example, and I, as far as I could tell, the only one I could find in the New Testament. Samson's another. Others? Getting a little bit more obscure now. I will tell you that two of their names start with A. <laughs> Abimelech. What happened to Abimelech? Do you remember? Yes. Judges chapter 9, a woman throws the millstone out of the tower, crushes his head, he's laying on the ground, and he's not dead yet. And he says to a guy passing by, run me through with a sword, he asks to be killed. So it's, it's kind of like suicide by sword. <laughs> and, and the guy does. Why did he say that? He said, I don't want it to be said of me that I was killed by a woman. So it's like pride that's driving this. Okay, wow, that's... that's That is pride. Wow. Oh, man. Um, The other A name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel. So Ahithophel was a counselor of David who became a counselor of Absalom when Absalom stole the crown or throne. Ahithophel gives advice to Absalom about pursuing David and Absalom says, okay, that sounds pretty good. Let me ask this other guy, Hushai. And there's a whole backstory to all of this that we don't have time to get into. And Hushai gives the opposite advice of what Ahithophel did. And Ahithophel had said, pursue David, 
find him, extract him, make sure he's the only one you kill. Hushai says, don't do that. You know that your father, the king, is a warrior, and he is ready for you, or he's hiding in a cave. You're never going to find him. And Hushai was actually buying time for David to get away. And he lays out this incredible case for Absalom, and Absalom says, he's right. Hushai, you're right. We're going to go with Hushai's advice. It's better than the advice of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel goes home and hangs himself. And you think, what was driving that? Was he just like mad that his advice wasn't taken? Hmm, Maybe. I think there's more to it. I think he's realizing that he was right, that that was the action that should have been taken. And he realizes that the other guy's advice is going to go bad and David is going to survive and David is going to come back and take the throne back. And then what's going to happen to Ahithophel? It's going to be a bad end. I think that's probably more likely. And this isn't my idea. This is an idea from a commentator. So it's some speculation there. Um, another guy, another um, more obscure one, Zimri, 1 Kings 16. Zimri ruled over Israel for seven days. <laughs> Zimri um, conspired against uh, the king, and I'm forgetting who's, what his name was. I just read this yesterday. This is what happens when you get old. Um, he, he conspired against the then king of Israel, kills him, claims the throne, and then the army says, you're not going to be king. They, they start marching, and he sees the writing on the wall. He goes into the king's house. He burns it down over him, and he commits suicide that way. And then we have Judas. Those are all of them that I could think of um, or find through commentators. And the, the, the other one, it just kind of is sort of like this, is Elijah, who, set, who wanted to die. Did Jonah want to die too? I meant to look that up, and I forgot to. He did? Yeah, Okay. All right, so you have some people that are like praying to die, but then actually don't, and they don't take their own life. So he's kind of in the same category. So how are we, from a biblical worldview, to think about suicide, about taking one's own life? Um, Found a wonderful article in the Association of Christian Biblical Counselors. Is that the? Yeah, ACBC. Um, Which offered a couple things. Um, First of all, There are physical issues with people in their brain sometimes that causes them to have difficulty controlling their thoughts, and we should never assume that that it's just a mental problem. Physical issues can be problematic, and they need to be dealt with by a medical doctor. Another aspect or another um, um, kind of category of suicide would be the external pressures of life are so overwhelming that it seems like taking your own life is the best way out. External pressures, things that are happening around us. And then another is internal pain. So external pressure, internal pain. I liked that juxtaposition from this article. Internal pain can come from a a wide variety of places, but it shows us the need for um, Philippians 4, our minds being guarded by the Holy Spirit, being guarded by God himself, guarded by the God of peace. These external pressures and internal pains create in a person big problems. And the problem is we can't see God because the big problems are covering up the big God that we should be seeing. And fleeing the inevitable sorrows and troubles of life seems like the answer. 
because these troubles are something we can't control and eventually we just can't deal with it. Now, as one person said, suicide is coming to the right conclusion, but it's the wrong solution. The right conclusion is that life isn't worth living without God. It's never the right solution. The right solution is running to God and throwing himself on his mercy and seeing him for who he is. We're not big enough to solve these big problems, but God is. God is always bigger. The problems with the solution of satisfied is that the the person that is fixated on this can't see God for who he is. They're They're observing the problems of life, but they're not interpreting it through the eyes of God. And so we, as a community of believers, need to put our arms around these people and help them to see that. This can happen with believers. I remember growing up, and I think, I think it was like at camp or something, a preacher saying, you know, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. That is not in Scripture. That is not what Scripture teaches. We don't see that. We see Jesus say there is one unforgivable sin, and that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Unforgivable means that you can't come back from this. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin. It is a sin because it is a taking of a life, which is in violation of God's commandment. It may result from a self-focus, a failure to understand that there's evil in this world that is going to create trouble, but that God has a purpose in the trouble. And that, pur- and that purpose is to help us be more like Jesus so that the world can see how someone who knows Jesus handles problems. That is glory to God. I'm not saying that's easy. It's a focus that is difficult because difficulties and troubles and tragedies in life can be overwhelming. Life's challenges can become major and God can become minor, and that's what happened to Saul. Saul had big problems, and every time he had a problem, what did he do? He tried to solve it himself instead of turning to God. This is probably the biggest distinction that we see in the book of 1 Samuel of Saul versus David. When Saul had a problem, he tried to solve it himself and inevitably ended up disobeying something God had commanded and making a mess of it, and now he's suffering the consequences of it, which is horrible. David, on the other hand, who wasn't always consistent, didn't always do the right thing, committed terrible sin in his life, but his heart was one that sought after God as a fundamental core part of who he was. And he would go through these up and down cycles where we'd see him in a down cycle and things, he would go to Philistia to help instead of turning to God for help, for example. But when we saw him going on the up, we would see him strengthening his hand in the Lord, being strengthened in the Lord through his friend Jonathan. We would see him turning to God. We'd see him seeking after God. We see in the Psalms, many of the Psalms written during this period of exile for David. They are the direct result where David takes his problem, his big problem, to his bigger God. If there's one thing we could learn 
about the difficulties of life, it is that God wants us to be dependent on him. And we need to run to him. And it's like, well, I did that yesterday. And here I am, and I'm struggling again. Yep. God is still there. He's still big. And we need to go to him as long as it takes to get through that problem. And we need to wrap our arms around people that struggle with this so tightly. We see Saul being an example of these huge external pressures, the pressure to be king, the pressure to act kingly, the pressure to act decisively and be a leader, and he couldn't fulfill any of that. He just couldn't. It was too big a job for him. And that was the point. God wanted him to say, I I can't do this. And God would say, but I can. You are small and I am great. And that's what he should turn to. Suicide is never God's answer. It's never his plan. But it's part of the reality of life and it hurts. It hurts. So we see, we see in summary Saul and his three sons all die in battle on the same day. And this is just as Samuel predicted back in chapter 28. We see as a result of this in verse 7 that Israel cedes territory. He, um, we see these people that realize that with the army defeated, there's no protection. And so if you're in a town that lives near Philistia, that's not a good place to live. And they flee And the Philistines come and they occupy those towns. Then we see in the last part of the chapter the desecration of Saul's body. Um, The Philistines discover his body the next day. So during the battle, evidently, they didn't realize that they had got him. And they circulate the good news throughout their land. Um, There's a little bit of echoes of David and Goliath here. After David killed Goliath, he cut his head off too. Um, So I think this is something that wasn't just grotesque, but it was like culturally part of the battle ethos. They uh, celebrate by displaying his body and his armor. Um, And it's it's a horrible scene as they celebrate. And we see some some men of valor, these men of Jabesh-Gilead. Does that ring any bells? Jabesh-Gilead, where have we heard that before? I have to reach way back in our study of 1 Samuel. Way back to chapter 4, I think it was. Nope, chapter 11, sorry. Turn the page of my notes and I see it now. (laughs) Chapter 11. So Nahash the Ammonite had sieged the city of Jabesh-Gilead, and he was so confident that he was going to win, the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, you know, let us us send out to Israel to see if anyone will help us, and if no one will help us, then we'll accede to your demand of putting out the right eye of everyone in the city and being your servants. It's like, okay, well, that's horrible too. So Nahash was so confident that no one was coming to their aid that he goes, sure, go ahead, knock yourselves out. And the news comes to Saul, and he's out plowing in his field. He's not looking very kingly at this point. He didn't have anything to do as king, evidently. And he rallies the people and he he cuts up the oxen he sends pieces of the oxen out and says if you don't rally to Saul and Samuel then you will be like this oxen you know so come to me and we will save Jabesh Gilead they march through the night they come and they rout the Ammonites and they save Jabesh Gilead 
Jabesh Gilead may be the place where Saul's grandmother came from. So there may be a family tie to that. So that goes way back into the book of Judges. So the men of Jabesh Gilead are grateful. They're grateful for their city being saved, and they return that. And even though Saul has not led them to victory, they're still grateful people. Even though this leader hasn't worked out the way Israel had hoped, they're still grateful. And they demonstrate that by coming, risking their own lives, retrieving these bodies, and taking them back and giving them a proper burial. They show respect. So we see these men doing something of valor for Saul and his sons. All right. So now let's turn to 2 Samuel 1.16. Now you may remember, I had said at one point, First and Second Samuel, Samuel used to be one really long book, and they divided it into two when they were making, um, making our Bible to make it a little easier. And so it's kind of interesting that it splits right here because chapter 1 of 2 Samuel is really, really about the death of Saul also. And so what we'll see in this chapter is the viewpoint from, from David, David's viewpoint. So where's David when chapter 31 is happening? Well, he's over in Ziklag. And you remember what happened in Ziklag? The, the town had been burned and he has to rescue, um, he has to rescue, rescue the families and everything. And they, they accomplish that and they come back to Ziklag. And now they're sitting there and, you know, Ziklag is probably still smoking. And this Amalekite comes to report on Saul's death. So let's read the first 10 verses here. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So he'd, he'd, this is a sign of, um, sign of sorrow, dirt, you know, the clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. Also, many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for, my, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord." So this Amalekite had escaped from the camp of Israel. So, so I have a series of questions here for you. First of all, what is an Amalekite doing living in Israel? Isn't this the group of people that God said to Saul, wipe out, completely wipe out, and Saul didn't? Okay, verse 13 re reveals that he was the son of a sojourner, someone who had come to live in the land, and he just like ends up living in the land. So maybe he was hiding his, the fact that he was an Amalekite, but he doesn't hide it from David. So evidently word hadn't gotten out that Amalekite's not welcome here, you know. All right, how is this 
account different than 1 Samuel 31? What is the key difference that we see? Yeah, so chapter 31 of 1 Samuel says that Saul fell on his own sword and died. This says the Amalekite claims that he killed him. So is this a contradiction? How do we reconcile this? Okay. All right, so what leads you to, what leads you to say that? Because he's probably wanted to curry favor with David. Okay. Excellent points. Chapter 31 gives us a very factual account by the writer saying, this is what happened. So with our view of the inspiration of Scripture, that's what we take to be truth. This account is reporting what the person said happened, which is different than what actually happened. So I think John has nailed it here. This is the Amalekite lying, and there is a motive embedded in here. So the next question is, how do we know that he had this motive of currying favor beyond speculation? There's something in the text that, that will lead us to that conclusion. It's not straight up says, here's why he said that, but it's, it, there's, I think, an implication. Lisa. He says, I brought these things here to you, my word. What did he bring? His crown and his armlet. You're like, huh. So he must have had the crown and the armlet there, right? I mean, you wouldn't say that unless you were like giving them to him at the time. This seems to maybe to explain why the Philistines didn't recognize Saul immediately because he wasn't wearing a crown. He's just another body at this point. So unless somebody knows what Saul looks like, which they didn't have Facebook, you know, so it's not like they were, you know, they knew what everybody looked like in the world. There was no celebrity profiles available. So it appears, I, I think you're right, John. I think he thought that he was going to be rewarded for this. And so by claiming more involvement than he actually had, he thinks he's going to get a pat on the back, a promotion, uh, you know, a place at, in David's you know, you know, inner circle, maybe financial reward, a lot of different things. So how did he get the crown and the armlet? He took them. Right. That's the only way he could have gotten them. Um, we're not told exactly in the, test, in the text, but I don't think it's too much speculation to say that he was in the area when Saul actually died. And he either saw what happened and then came and took it, or he happened on the body before the Philistines got there, and he took it and hit it and ran. The Philistines were close enough, archers, the infantry coming, that this is all a very precarious battle situation. So he had to do things quickly, but he did do it. It's also possible that the battle just kind of flows over the area and Saul is left dead and people don't notice it and the Amalekite is coming through like as a treasure hunter and picks it up like the night after the battle. We don't know. One way or another, he quickly gets possession of these articles and, it comes, and, it, and he comes and takes it to David. David reacts in um, the following verses, which we won't take the time to read, by first of all mourning 
him and his men. The same men that had encouraged him to take Saul's life now are mourning Saul's death with David. This is leadership. This is leadership from David to show the right attitude toward God and his anointed. They had gotten the message at this point that that God's anointed is someone special who you don't mess with. And when something bad happens to him, the right reaction is not rejoicing. The right reaction is mourning. They mourned for Saul. They mourned for Jonathan. They mourned for the people of the Lord, it says in verse 12. And they mourned for the house of Israel in defeat. There's a lot of mourning going on. And then he also reacted to Saul's death by avenging his death. He executes the Amalekite. And he says to him, this is true to form with David, verse 14, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And he says at the end of verse 16, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. In other words, you took the witness stand, you said, I did it, you're guilty, death sentence is the result. We have one more version to look at, and that's 1 Chronicles chapter 10. And my book on 1 Samuel doesn't have that. I need to turn there quickly. So the, ver- the first 12 verses of 1 Chronicles 10 are almost verbatim with 1 Samuel 31. Almost the same thing. I don't know if it was the same writer different writer that was looking at the text and then just adding some color commentary. But chapter 10, 1 Chronicles, should have had that marked. So let's look at 13 and 14. This is the color commentary. So Saul died, why? For his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek the guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So we see this this commentary on Saul's life that is focused on an obedience failure time after time. He died for breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord. He stopped trusting and he started trying to do it himself. So what do we learn these last five minutes here? What do we learn from all of this? Looking at Saul's life in 30,000 foot view, disobedience brings death, obedience brings life. Here's the message to all of us, choose life. (laughs) Choose life. Choose obedience. This is what God wants from us. He wants us to obey. And in order to obey, we've got to trust. I love the old hymn, trust and obey, trust and obey. And we may have sung that so much that it seems trite, that maybe it seems like, oh, that's a really old hymn, you know. It's a wonderful message. It's the simplicity of the gospel. It's the simplicity of the message that God has for us. He wants us to come before God and say, God, I can't do it, but I trust that you will, and I will obey you. I will obey what you want me to do. We trust God because we trust that he will keep his promises. God is a promise-keeping God. He said Saul would die, and he did. He said David would be king, and he will. 
We'll see that in 2 Samuel when we get to that. We learn that God takes obedience very seriously. We may, we may easily think that God doesn't take obedience seriously. We may think that because we don't have like immediate consequence when we disobey. And we look around and we see people who are like, they've said they're believers, but they're obviously sinning. They're doing things that are opposed to God. And we don't see God's hand smiting them. God didn't hit the smite button as soon as they sinned. That's called grace. That's called mercy. And if God did what I just described, there'd be nobody sitting here today and nobody standing here today because we all sin. And why does God not do that? Because Jesus paid for every one of those acts of disobedience already. He paid for our sin completely. There is therefore no condemnation for those whose faith is in Jesus. We don't have to have guilt. We don't have to have shame for disobedience because Jesus paid it all. He paid for everything. And he still wants us to obey he wants us to obey him. I think it's interesting that we see at the beginning of the book, Eli and his sons are disobedient to God, and they are judged, and they're judged through the Philistines. At the end of the book, we see Saul, disobedient to God, judged by God, judged through the Philistines. One difference in that analogy. Saul's sons were not recorded anywhere that they disobeyed. They got caught in the backwash. And sometimes that's the way sin is. Sin is so evil and so horrible that sometimes other people get caught in the damage that's happening because of someone else's sin. We see that in families. We see this in these, in these verses that Pastor John has been talking to us about from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and then taking us back to Exodus 34. And it says that the, the, the effects of sin are going to go to the third and fourth generation. Those third and fourth generation aren't being blamed for the sin, but they're going to suffer the effects of it. So when we sin, we don't just affect ourselves. We affect people around us. And the people that most get affected are those that are closest to us, the ones that we love the most, our children, our grandchildren. Let me encourage you, older saints, take obedience seriously because your kids and your grandchildren need it. Those of you that are younger, let me encourage you, obey God now, because you will develop a pattern of life that will help you when you're older. When you get older, it's harder to change. Younger people always want change immediately, and it seems like it's easy, and like, why doesn't it happen? It's obvious. And older people are like, why do we need to change? We've done this for years. It's harder to change as you get older. Learn obedience now. Have a life that is focused on pleasing God. Another thing we learned from the death of Saul is that God is never mentioned in 1 Samuel 31. He is absent from that chapter. Saul is dying alone, and it's a scary thing to die without God. All of Saul's fears are being realized in these moments. Life without God is difficult and unfulfilling, this account should make us hate sin, and it should make us seek God. That is the story of Saul's life that we should be able to take away, that 
God wants us to see an example of what happens, how bad the train can come off the rails when we don't obey him. So our homework for next week is we're going to be doing a review of First Samuel, and we're going to do it from this lens, this, through this lens, with this perspective. What does, what does it look like to be a man after God's own heart? That's how David is described. And the opposite is a man not after God's own heart. Saul was a king after Israel's own heart. Give us a king. And a woman's own heart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. What do we learn about being a man or woman after God's own heart? It applies to both of us, not just the men. Thank you. So that's what we'll be looking at. So your homework is to think about that this week. I would love it if you would jot down a few things because I'm hoping we'll get some good discussion in our review, make some application. Let's pray. Father, we, we look at this passage and our hearts are heavy for the effect of sin in Saul's life and the effect on his, his sons also. But we are grateful that you teach us that you are there and ready and willing to obey, or ready and willing to forgive when we don't obey. And we just thank you for the blood of Christ that makes that possible. We just ask now as we worship you with our brothers and sisters that our worship would be pleasing, that it would be honoring to you, and we're grateful for it in Christ's name. Amen.